right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, why? Because this is the living Word of God. Turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah 41 is where we will begin, Isaiah 41. Now, we're starting a new series, so I've got a couple things. It's Advent. Not yet, it's coming up. The four Sundays in Advent. If you look in your lesson notes, I want to just give you a couple things here to begin with to kind of orientate us to the upcoming Advent season. First of all, Advent with your family. Advent with your family. Um, Friends, whoever, whoever, your roommates. Advent with your family. Advent simply means celebrating the comings of Christ, the two comings. Adventus is it's from Latin. It means coming, the coming of Christ. And it's uh, four Sundays. This year, it's the four Sundays in December. And so you see the four Sundays, and the fifth day of Advent is Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. And a uh, long time ago, I, I try to organize this, and this is how I go through it for our, our family. It's really just thinking about the Christmas story and moving through the idea of the promise candle, uh, which is like the Old Testament prophets and prophecies, which we are going to focus on for our Advent study. We're going to look at the predictions and the prophecies of Christ. But you can see that and you can move that, move down through that. And if you need help, you want help on how to do this or, or some more structure in doing this, I'd be glad to give you plenty of information and help with that. But we also want to do Advent as a class, as a class. Now, that's always weird in our class because, like, next week we don't have Discovery Hour. So we're starting Advent a week early. So basically you'll be a week ahead and you can prepare yourself or your family or your friends or whatever to study Advent. And we're going to look at the Servant Songs of Isaiah. And our series is Behold the Servant. Uh, It's challenging to do the Old Testament. It's challenging to do the prophets, okay? I maxed out myself the last two weeks trying to get my head and heart around this. But I'm excited about it, and I hope you will as well. But also looking at Advent as a church. So in our worship service, Pastor Bruce will be also doing Isaiah, different passages. So really, uh, in December... As a church, we're looking at Isaiah, which is one of the greatest books in all the Bible. And I've got charts here for you. You have them on your, on your page. This one is the one I, I did uh, and try to summarize and get it all on there. So, uh, if, so here's what I want to challenge us to do and even challenge our church to do. And that is to do a 24-day reading plan in December through the book of Isaiah. So the handouts are there. The reading plan is there. It's on our website, wearelifebridge.com. And you can download it. You can share it with others. You can follow. Uh, This is something that uh, Christians are doing. On Twitter, you can follow uh, hashtag Isaiah Christmas and read together. And I think if you'll take this reading plan for the first 24 days, if you take this chart and begin to try to get a handle on this book, and I'm telling you right up front, uh, how many of you have ever read Isaiah? All right, so, okay, so I just, reading through the Bible, I recently just read through it again, and I'm like, 
this book just, you know, just what is going on? I mean, I know there's good stuff. So for the last couple of weeks, I just said, I have got to get a handle on this. And so I think I'm getting there. You're never going to conquer Isaiah, I don't think, but I'm getting there and hopefully I can help you. So here's what I'm trying to say. If you do the reading plan, don't freak out if you're like, I'm reading this and I have no clue what's going on. You have to keep reading it. You have to keep reading it. But if you'll use a chart like this and look at it and then look at what you're reading and then look at where you are on the chart, it will help you. Because And then I just gave you a couple other ones. This is the Bible Project, so they got two videos to take you through this detailed one. But I just keep, I always watch these videos. I just keep looking, trying to get the big picture of books of the Bible. And then I really enjoyed this one with the, just the color. And, and so I don't know who, you know, what floats your boat. You figure that out. And uh, I want you to join us. And I want you to do that. Because if you look on this chart, the book of Isaiah, if you said, okay, man, this is all so overwhelming, it's complex. Well, okay, here you go. The hope of glory. The hope of glory. That is the message of Isaiah. And I'm trying, what I'm going to try to do is in today's lesson, kind of give you the broad strokes of Isaiah as we zero in on the very first servant song. And so with that, we're going to see that this first servant song of Isaiah, there's four of them, okay? There's four of them. Some, some people say five, but we're going to look at four for the four Sundays of Advent. And they're going to show us that this message of the book of Isaiah, of ultimately God needing to restore order to his creation, Life is out of control. Hearts are in rebellion. And God is seated on the throne of heaven in his glory. And he is going to restore order to his creation. And we're going to see why that's needed today in this lesson. And so we're going to see our problem and God's solution. So let's take a look at it there in your notes. And notice, here's our problem. The world deserves God's judgment. That's the problem. The world deserves God's judgment. And that's really kind of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. You're like, how do I make sense of this 66-chapter book? Well, the first 39 chapters are basically saying the world deserves God's judgment. So let's look at the first point of this. God's rebel creation is filled with disorder and depravity. Disorder and depravity. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, look underneath that. We live in a chaotic world filled with corrupt or crooked hearts. We f live in a chaotic world filled with corrupt or crooked hearts. Therefore, the first 39 chapters in Isaiah have one powerful message, and it's this. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And what's interesting about the book of Isaiah, it's not just on the unbelieving nations. Well, yeah, that makes sense. They need judgment. But it's also on unfaithful, the unfaithful nation of Israel. So judgment is coming to all the world, 
on the unbelieving pagan nations, but also on God's chosen nation because they have been unfaithful to their covenant God. And so in your Bibles, uh, obviously we're not going to read chapters 1 through 39. That's why there's a reading plan. And what we are going to look at is chapter 41 because chapter 41 leads into this first servant song. And in chapter 41, it's just filled with idolatry. The nations of Israel have been unfaithful and disloyal to the Lord. So look at what it says. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, the nation was called to be his servant. We're talking about the servant songs. Well, guess what? The nation of Israel was called to be the servant of the Lord as a nation. And they were called to be a light to the Gentiles. But guess what? They... And this is like in the 8th century B.C. So this is like 700 B.C., around there. 8th century B.C. And, uh, you know, about 700 years before Christ, right? 700 years before Christ. They're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. But what are they doing? They're living in darkness. How can you be a light when your life is filled with darkness? Not a bad question for you and I. How can we be a light to others if darkness is filling our lives? Well, here's why they were living in darkness. They were being unjust. They were being unjust in their relationships. You're going to see a lot. If you join us in this reading plan, you're going to see a lot about justice and judgment. They, their their decision-making was leading to bloodshed. Instead of Uh, Instead of giving life to other people as God's people, they were taking life. Okay, They were sucking the life and literally taking the life of others. Secondly, they were being unrighteous. They were being unrighteous. They were living and relating in a way that brought oppression on other people. So instead of increasing the freedom of people around them, They were decreasing their freedom, leading them into bondage by exploiting them, oppressing them, taking advantage of them. Does that sound familiar? Okay, that's the world that we live in. These are the issues that the world is filled with. Uh, You know, we're headed into this wonderful time of 2020 and presidential elections. And yet, what is the questions all about? Exploitation, oppression, liberation, freedom. So... Israel was living in darkness due to being unjust in their decision-making, unrighteous in their relationships, and three, being unfaithful to the Lord. They were unfaithful to the Lord. So here's this little nation in the crosshairs of global history, and yet their God, and this is Isaiah's favorite term for the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. They have their God that they can cry out to. But instead of crying out to God in repentance and humility, instead, they're worshiping false gods, running to foreign kings, and making foolish alliances with other nations to protect them. It made me think of our study of Elijah, where we did the series, uh, the lesson that was entitled, you know, 
what am I, chopped liver? Is there not a God in Israel? Yes, there's the Holy One of Israel. I mean, who, who would be so crazy as to run to a, a pagan God, a false God, to a, a foreign nation and making alliances with weak, sinful men when you've got a holy God to run to? Whoop, time out. Look in the mirror. That's what we do. That's exactly what we do. We've got this great, awesome, living God, and yet we panic and we run and we look to others and we look to the world to kind of help us. So the first 39 chapters is focused on that. So here's the question. Is our time any different? Are we any better? The world's not functioning like it should. That's what disorder means. The world is not functioning like it should, and our hearts are not fixed on the Lord like they should be. That's depravity. The world's not functioning like God created it to, and our hearts are not fixed on trusting Him. Life is not as it should be, and our hearts are not where they should be. Can you relate to that this Advent season? So here's, the, here, here, here's a point that I want you to get. When we live east of Eden, do you know what I mean by that? What's east of Eden? We're not in the garden, Toto. You know, we're not in Kansas. We're not in the garden anymore. We live east of Eden. And when you live east of Eden, Christmas is never like a Hall, Hallmark movie. Can I get an amen? Okay, not, not, not getting down on you Hallmark fans. But I'm just telling you, that ain't life. That ain't like it, how it goes, okay? It's never like a Hallmark movie. And until God kingdom come, comes, it's always winter and never Christmas in this world. Any Narnian reader, readers? Okay? That's what I'm trying to say. And that's what the first 39 chapters, and that's what specifically chapter 41 is focused on. So here, so here, here's this world. It's disordered. It's filled with depraved hearts. It's filled with chaos and crookedness and corruption. So what is God? What's the Holy One of Israel? What's God doing during all this? Well, turn to Isaiah 6. Keep your hand in Isaiah 41. Turn back to Isaiah 6. Here's the vision of Isaiah. Here is what God is doing then, and here is what God is doing now. Look at Isaiah 6 and begin in verse 1. Look in your Bibles. Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He's ruling, lofty and exalted. No one can bring him down. He is untouchable. With the train of his robe filling the temple. He is all in all and all sovereign. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two covered their face because he is so glorious. With two covering their feet. They are, un, you know, he is so holy, we are unclean. With two they flew and one called to another and said, Holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts or armies. In fact, 
Isaiah will use, if you join us on the reading plan, Isaiah will use the Lord of hosts, or I like to uh, modernize it a little bit, Lord of armies. That's the name he uses for God more than any other. His favorite is the Holy One of Israel. That's the point of the book. But he says this, The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. What is God doing in all this? He's ruling over it. Okay? He's ruling over it. But what is he going to do about it? Okay? What is the Holy One of Israel going to do about it? Well, that's the second point. The Holy One of Israel challenges the false gods. The Holy One of Israel challenges the false gods and those who trust in them to prove their case. In other words, he's like, you guys are running to these false gods, but these false gods are no gods. Why are you running to them? And so, uh, in a sense, the Lord, the true God, puts the false gods on trial. And he says, prove your case. And uh, so this is kind of, and this is chapter 41. So turn to chapter 41, 21 through 23. This is kind of like in the story of Elijah, the smackdown between the 450 prophets of Baal and Elijah. And the idea is, who is the true God? Prove who you are. But in this case, it's the Lord himself challenging them. So look at uh, Isaiah 41, look at 21 through 23. Here's what the Lord says. Present your case. In other words, let's go to the let's go to trial. He's basically suing them. Present your case, the Lord says, bring forward your strong arguments. The king of Jacob, Israel says, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what's coming. Tell us what happened in the past. Tell us what's going to happen in the future. Declare the things that are going to come afterward. Why? That we may know that you are God's. So here's basically the challenge. Number one. Prove that you are God's worthy of worship. Prove that you are God's worthy of worship. And how are they going to do that? Show that you control history by predicting coming judgment or coming deliverance. Okay? So let's prove that you're God. Right? So what happens? Verse 24. Behold, and that's going to be a key word. That means God is is revealing and at work. Behold, you are of no account and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Drop down to verse 29. In verse 29, there's another behold. Here's the results of the court case. Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images, you know, these cast iron, silver, gold, these big, awesome, impressive images, ah, they're just wind and emptiness. They're just hot air. So what's going on here? Well, number two, behold, God judges these false gods to be worthless. They're nothing. They're worthless. He said, prove your worth. 
by predicting the future, explaining the past. Basically, show that you control history. And the result is, well, first of all, false gods can't even talk, much less control history, right? And so what's he saying is, you're worthless. You're nothing. It's it, I, The message I knew, you know, every, paraphrases have their place and they can be very humorous. So here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrases verses 24 and 29. They say nothing because they are nothing. Sham gods, no gods, fool-making gods. Nothing here. It's all smoke and hot air. Sham gods, hollow gods, no gods. Wow. And that's really what the book of Isaiah is all about. It's about the one true God who can explain the past and predict the future before it ever happens. And there's no one, no one other than him who can do that. You know who's worthy of your worship? The Holy One of Israel, who's in charge of all of history. And that includes your life, the past, the present, and the future. So, boom, number three, boom, what does God do? God proves that He is worthy of worship by predicting the future and literally fulfilling it. By predicting the future and literally fulfilling it. And this is in verses 25 through 28. We're still in chapter 41, 25 through 28. So here's, here's the challenge. Hey, you false gods, prove that you're worthy of being t- worshipped and trusted. Well, there's silence. They can't tell you the past. They can't tell you the future. And then the Lord steps in, and he does exactly that. So look at verse 25. I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. Write out in the margin of your Bibles, King Cyrus of Persia. King Cyrus of Persia. Why is that important? Well, let's look. From from the rising of the sun, he will call on my name, and he will call upon the rulers as upon mortar, uh, mortar, even as the potter treads clay. In other words, he's going to smash crush and rule the world who has declared this from the beginning that we might know or from former times that we might say he's right surely there's no one who declared surely there was no one who proclaimed surely there was no one who heard your words formerly i said to zion behold here they are and to jerusalem i will give you a messenger of good news. In other words, I'm going to send you true prophets, but they're living in such darkness, all their prophets are false prophets. So look at what he says. Verse 28, But when I look, there's no one. There is no counselor among them who, if I ask, can give an answer. Now, what's going on here? Well, look in your notes. The Lord predicts 150 years in advance... Please think about that. The Lord predicts 150 years in advance that Cyrus, king of Persia, a pagan king, would defeat Babylon, who is going to take Judah into captivity, defeat them, and free the remnant of Judah to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. He predicted, now get this, this is where the hard work comes in. 
He's predicting who's going to deliver them out of captivity before they're even in captivity. They're going to be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. He's predicting this 150 years in advance, and he's not just predicting some vague, you know, there's all these false fortune tellers and all this stuff. He's doing it by name. Now, this freaks out liberal scholars and skeptics who don't believe a, a, a true God could predict the future. So they say everything after in Isaiah 40 through 66 were written after Israel got delivered, after Cyrus came on the scene. But folks, that's the whole point of the, of the story. You make God a liar if you push these, these books these chapters way in the future after it's come about. It's just amazing that our God can do that. Now, it's interesting. Think about this. Israel's living in darkness and they're unfaithful. They're taken into captivity. God disciplines his people, takes them into Babylon. But in his grace... He's going to have a Persian king defeat Babylon and free his people to go back to the promised land. Two things, though. God's solution can't be an unsaved king. Even though, in this book, he's going to call Cyrus my servant. This ain't the servant that we're celebrating. Second of all, even though Israel were liberated and went back to the promised land, they went back with the same hard hearts that took them into captivity. And do you realize God called Israel my servant? So here's my point. As you read through the book of Isaiah, you're going to see three groups of people or three people called my servant. You're going to see unfaithful Israel. You're going to see unsaved Cyrus, my servant. But God's solution is not unbelievers or unfaithful believers. God's solution is, behold, meet my servant. Meet my servant. And so we move into the first servant song of Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Let's take a look at it. Look in your Bibles. Here's our word again. Behold. Behold my servant, not unfaithful nation of Israel, not unsaved King Cyrus. Oh, I'll use them, but they are not my servant. They are not the solution to the world's problem of depravity and disorder. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed. Until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. That means the farthest reaches of the map. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law or his instruction. 
Here's God's solution to the world's problem and your problem, my problem. Behold, meet my servant. So I want to show you five characteristics. We're going to go all the way down to verse 9, but we've read up to what? Verse 4. I want to show you five characteristics of my servant. Now, the other servant songs are going to expand on this, so I, I, you know, I'm not worried about going into that you grasp everything this first go around because the songs grow as we go. Okay, so here's the first characteristic: the servant's master is the Holy One of Israel. In this song, the Lord Himself is saying, "Meet my, meet my servant." Let me introduce you to him, okay? And so the servant's master is the Holy One of Israel. And he says three significant things about him, okay? In, these first, in, the, in just the first verse. It's my servant whom I uphold. Here's the beautiful thing about being the servant of the Lord. He takes care of his own. This is my servant. I have a stake in what happens to him. I will uphold him. I will protect him. I will care for him. Number two, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. The focus here is on election and God's joy in the people that he chooses to serve him. See, he's the master. So he chooses who gets to enter his household and who serves him. But when he does that, when he chooses his servants, he delights in them. They bring him pleasure. Number three, my anointed one on whom I have put my spirit. Focus here is on identification. This is my servant. I'm going to uphold him. I delight in him. And I'm going to empower him and identify with him. And I'm going to be present with him. Isn't that cool? So there's the idea. Now, here's the beautiful thing about Isaiah. If you'll join us on the reading plan, you'll read through Isaiah. And I would, you know, I didn't figure this out yet. I've read it like three or four times this week, the whole book, or this last two weeks. Almost every other page, you're going to say, well, that's from the New Testament. And then you're going to turn the page and you're going to say, that's from the New Testament. It's like almost every other verse, you're like, oh, I, you're going to find so much familiarity with this book. Well, just what I've read right here, behold my servant whom I've chosen in my delight. At least three times in the gospel in Jesus' earthly ministry from heaven, a voice from heaven says, Behold my son in whom I am well pleased. At the beginning of his ministry, his service for his master, and then at the transfiguration right before he went to the cross to be the suffering servant, here's the Lord using the prediction of Isaiah, well, his own prediction, and saying it's being fulfilled in the ministry and the suffering of Jesus Christ. Now, the master doesn't call his servants to sit, sour, and soak. He calls them to actually serve. So the second thing I want you to see in this passage is the servant's mission. The servant's mission is to restore God's order 
among the nations and all of creation. Now, look in your Bibles at verse 1, verse 3, and verse 4. What word is repeated three times? Verse 1, 3, and 4. What word is repeated three times? What? Justice. This is his mission, is justice. But it's not social justice like we think of it now in politics and our culture, you know, making things right as I want them to be. It's the judgments of the Lord that restores the world to its proper functioning. Okay, so it's not judgment like you're a sinner, you're bad, go to hell. It's, it's justice is I'm going to make what's wrong right as I created it to be. Is that not cool? Okay. You ever had something break on you that you've bought, you invested in, it breaks, it just doesn't work like it used to? Like I had heated seats in my car and they don't work, right? And to restore them is way too expensive to restore them, you know. I got the car given to me. I'm like, oh, you know, these pampered people. Well, guess what? Pretty nice. But mine went out before my daughter's did, and I would take her to school. Anyway, long story. I wish it would be restored to its proper functioning. Well, the creator of all things is looking at this earth and looking at our hearts and saying, oh, these, I wish they were restored to what I intended for them. Isn't that good? Now, notice in verse 1, his mission is to bring forth justice to the nations. In verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. In verse 4, until he has established justice in the earth. Well, the idea is restore God's order among the nations and in all of creation. So you've got two key words here. Two key words, judgment and faithfulness. Okay, and you will see these, did I spell that right? I don't think I did. Judgment, and sometimes it's translated justice, and then faithfulness. And these two words are going to be linked together all throughout the book if you join us in reading through the book. Here's the idea of judgment. Judgment is decision-making that leads to restoration. Faithfulness is living with God and others in a way that leads to righteousness. That's what God's mission is for His servant, is to establish a justice that restores, basically another way of saying it, restores God's kingdom on this earth. And in restoring God's kingdom, people are going to be rightly related to God and rightly related to one another. And you know what? In Hebrew, there's these, these words. Are, the opposite of judgment is bloodshed, and the opposite of faithfulness is oppression. And those Hebrew words are they sound very similar. And so what's happening is the nation of Israel was supposed to live with 
justice, bringing God's kingdom rule back to the earth. And they were to result in righteousness. But instead of restoration, they bring bloodshed. And instead of righteousness, they're bringing oppression. And that you're going to see all throughout this book. Okay, So here's the one big idea. The servant's mission is to faithfully restore God's order to this disordered world filled with depraved hearts. God's mission, or the servant's mission, is to faithfully restore God's order in creation, or you could say it, restore God's kingdom on earth. Are you with me? Now, why do I keep saying creation? Because you'll see in the book of Isaiah, it it ends with the new creation. And so it's that global picture. We talked about it in our last series. But the way he's going to restore creation is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. So that's the mission. Now, here's what's radical about the servant. It's not that he has a master, and it's not that he has a mission to rule the earth that any you know that that could be anybody it's the manner in which he's going to do it and that's the third characteristic the servant's manner is gentle quiet and faithful to the end i just read to you verses two through four some of the most familiar in isaiah right bruise reed flickering wick What's going on here? The servant's manner. He's going to restore order, but not in the worldly way of leading a rebellion, starting a revolution, rioting in the streets. You realize that's kind of our future as a nation? Because people think, the world thinks, to restore order, we've got to rebel. We've got to start a revolution, right? We've got to march in the streets, break windows crush people, put down the oppressors. But here's Jesus to promote. Notice, two things that the servant will not do to restore order. Number one, he will not promote himself or lead a public protest. No, he's going to be quiet. He won't cause a riot in the streets. He's going to be quiet. He won't start a revolution to overthrow Babylon, Persia, or Rome, okay? And number two, he will not force himself on others or resort to physical violence. He's so gentle. He's so gentle that if you have this little stick that's just half broken, he won't break it. Or you have this candle that's, you ever had a candle that's down and it's just fighting for life? And Jesus is so gentle that when he walks by, he will not even extinguish that flickering wick. Isn't that cool? And what is the world? What do, what do you? I mean, right now you're like, how are you going to over? How are you going to restore order? And yet, that's exactly what Jesus did. What will the servant? What will the servant do? What the servant will do is this. He's going to restore order to the nations and all creation quietly, gently, and faithfully. Look at verse 
4. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. Those two words in the New American Standard, disheartened and crushed, are the same words for bruised and dimly wick. Basically what he's saying is, what I won't do to others will not happen to me. Because you're thinking, man, if you're gentle, if you're quiet, if you're humble, you're going to get crushed in this world. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. I won't break down. I won't burn out. And I'm not going to bail out until my mission is accomplished. Or to put it in another way, I'm not going to fall apart. I'm not going to flame out. And I'm not going to fail to fulfill my mission. Isn't that beautiful? Folks, this is our sovereign Savior. He's a roaring lion, and he's gentle as a lamb. He's a sovereign king with a scepter that can crush the universe, and yet he rules with a gentle spirit and calm words. And you know what's interesting? You go to Matthew 12. In the Gospel of Matthew, the longest quote from the Old Testament is quoting this passage. And it's applied to Jesus. And it explains why when crowds would get big and want to make him king, in other words, let's revolt, he would withdraw from crowds and conflict. Because he's a coward? No. Because his manner is not the worldly ways. Furthermore, remember, I mean, you ever read the Gospels where Jesus does miracles and he tells people, don't say anything about it? You're like, what? I thought we were supposed to evangelize. No, the point was, don't create a riot. Don't create a a, a rebellion. I'm not going to accomplish this restoration the world's way. I'm going to do it God's way, and I'm going to be the suffering servant. Isn't that beautiful? How's he going to do this? Number four, the servant's mainstay is the I am God. Look at verses five through six. Thus says the God, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens, stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. Whoa. The reason the suffering servant will prevail is because God the creator and God the redeemer is not only going to be with him, but we know from the New Testament he is the creator and he is the redeemer, which all his miracles pointed to. Number five, what will the ministry look like? The servant's ministry is to bring light and liberty or liberating light to those bound in darkness. His ministry is to bring liberating light to those bound in darkness. Look at, look at verse, uh, continue with verse six. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon 
and those who dwell in darkness from prison. Now, what these word pictures are just amazing. Think of someone, uh, when we went to England, we visited a castle that has real dungeons, and they are dark, and they are dank, and prisoners would be chained to the walls. And then imagine your eyes get adjusted, and, and, and it's darkness. And then all of a sudden, you're brought out into the light. And in being freed from bondage, you actually see things as they ought to be. That's the picture. That is the picture. What is the purpose of the servant's ministry? To open blind eyes, set people free who are enslaved in dungeons of darkness. We'll talk more about this in another servant song. What I want you to see is how is the servant going to do this? By being a covenant to the people and a light to the Gentiles. Now, there's issues that we have to consult and think about. I've asked you two questions. Who are the people? And what, what, is, the cov- or what is the covenant? And who are the people? I've given you New Testament references. What I believe this passage is saying is the suffering servant will be the new covenant for his people. And so when Jesus is offering the Lord's Supper, he says, this bread is my body. This wine symbolizes my blood of the new covenant. And the new covenant is what brings the Spirit and transforms hearts that are depraved. Okay? Here's the bottom line. The master servant will fulfill his ministry to restore order to this disordered world and and depraved hearts by being who he is, teaching what he knows, and doing what only he can do. In other words, Jesus is the gospel. The way this is going to happen is Jesus is going to end up being the suffering servant. And he's going to be the light to the Gentiles. He's going to be the new covenant for Israel. And those who come to him will be set free from their dungeons of darkness. And their blind eyes will open to see life as it should be in God's, under God's kingdom, under God's rule. And their hearts are going to be transformed by his ministry. So here's what I want to end with. Now that you've met my servant, this is the Lord speaking to us. Now that I, you've met my servant, how are you going to respond? And look at verse, uh, verse 10. You can read all the way down to verse 12. Just read verse 10. Here's how we should respond. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and those who dwell in them. Why are we singing a new song? Because his mission's going to be accomplished. His kingdom's going to come. Creation is going to be restored. And you can get in on it. And if you're in on it, you should be singing a new song to the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? So here's the application. Three things. First of all, I don't know your heart. You may not know your heart, but God does. And here's the good news. Trust the Lord to make your heart 
a part of that new creation. Let him give you a new heart so that your old ways pass away and behold, all things become new. Trust him, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second of all, give the Lord the glory he deserves for making his servant be your new covenant that gave you a new heart. Give him glory. Give him glory. Give him the praise. And then sing to the Lord a new song because one day what he's done in your heart, he's going to do with all of creation. Is that not good? So here's the deal. Tomorrow, we're back in a chaotic world filled with people with crooked hearts. Have I just described your workplace? But you're going there as a new creation. And here's what I'm going to challenge you with. Serve the Lord this week with a new manner that is gentle, quiet, and faithful until the Lord comes. Isn't that good stuff? That was challenging. When Gwen was at her lowest, we, I remember us laying on, on the floor of our living room. And I just kept reassuring Gwen. He will not crush a bruised reed. He will not extinguish a flickering wick. And that was as much for her encouragement as it was for mine. Because I'm like, God, you're going to have to do this. Because I can't do this. I can't, I can't restore order. I can't change crooked hearts. I can't overcome depression. But you can. And so our trust is in you. And I don't know. I had no guarantees how that's going to turn out. But what I know is there's coming a kingdom. And there's coming a new creation. Amen. And I can trust him. You've just met God's servant. There's more to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank your grace in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're humbled because we know our way of fixing ourselves and the people around us is not your way. Help us not to trust in man but in your servant. Help us to not serve the world's ways, but your way. Let us have the gentleness of Jesus, the strength of you as a creator, God, the, the quietness, and yet the voice of your word that can shake this world. God, let us be faithful until your mission is accomplished and your kingdom comes and we give all the praise to your son in whom you are well pleased amen let it be because it's true amen